there's both a push and a pull of, of shift in resources and leaders in the right time, in the right place, that makes this the perfect place. I don't mean this as lip service. There, there is nowhere else that I would work in the department right now to work mm -hmm. on this problem set, full stop. Welcome to CentCast, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters. Coming to you from Tampa Bay, Florida, with your host, Joe Buccino. Okay, folks, welcome back to CentCast. Thanks so much for listening. Joe Buccino here, along with... Joe Crespo. Hey, today we have a guest. This is going to be an interesting one. We do. We have Skylar Moore, our... U.S. CENTCOM Chief Technology Officer. And she has a really interesting story, a really interesting background. No sense in talking about it now, because hopefully she's going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What I think is, is interesting is um, she is the subject of a March 30th column in the Washington Post by David Ignatius. The title is U.S. Central Command Finally Gets a Taste of Disruption. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's doing a lot to innovate. We thought we'd bring her on to talk about what CENTCOM's doing with innovation. And then as we are finding here, as you and I are finding here, she has a really interesting backstory, a really interesting set of experiences, and hopefully she'll talk through all that. She does, and she's really the, the flag bearer of innovation when we talk about people, partners, and innovation. And speaking of that, is that we should just tee this up here. Here in CENTCOM, there's three things we do. We deter Iran. We counter violent extremist organizations. We compete strategically with China and Russia. That's, that's the what. That's right? the what. That's what we do. People, partners, innovation, that's how we that's do them. That's how we do it. So you think about Crespo over the last few episodes. We had we had Fleet Walter, the senior enlisted advisor to the CENTCOM commander, and he talked about people, our people initiative, everything we're doing there. Then we had this fantastic discussion with General Sean Sumo Celine, and he talked about partners. partners. And then today. Today, we want to talk about innovation with Skylar Moore. So let's bring her in and talk about some innovation. Let's bring her in. How long have you known each other? A full six months, I would say. Okay. Yeah. Most of what I know about you, I read in the Washington Post. Okay. <laughs> oh, good. It's all a lie. Is it? Yeah. Let's get into it. So you've had a lot of life in 30 years. I, I've done my best. Yeah. You know Crespo? Yep. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Let's just get into your story. You went to Harvard. Was that always kind of a path for you or? Uh, I mean, I was I was looking at a couple of different schools. To be frank, going into college, I was more focused on who had the best diving team. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my priority at the okay. time. And I almost didn't go to Harvard because there was another school that had a better diving team. Uh, and my parents sat me down and advised me that my future as a professional diver was probably not yeah. uh, the right investment. You grew up in Northern California? Southern California. So, okay, so you went to Harvard and then you studied what? What's the story there? I studied government. Okay, all right, makes sense. And then at a certain point, you either graduated or you left temporarily to go to Afghanistan? Yeah, so halfway through, um, I was a sophomore and I fractured my back diving. Oh my and God. so I took a year off and decided that uh, during the year I wanted to get different work experiences. And so I had the chance to work at the Global Terrorism Center and then at the State Department for a little bit and then uh, at the Marshall Center in Germany. And then finally, a lot of those experiences were focused on Afghanistan research. And throughout that experience, it became increasingly clear to me that it was important to physically go there and get on the ground experience. Mm -hmm. So I found a school to volunteer at and that was the final piece of my year out. And you must be at a very high platform. I mean, you must be 
I would <laughs> watch her say it was from the lower. It, it was from three meter. It was on a three meter springboard. Oh wow. Okay. You yeah. must have been very good at it. I was fairly good at diving. Okay. All right, so you took a year off, you got injured. In terms of, you needed to recover to get back into the school, or, or basically you decided to take the time off, recover, and then come back in. Uh, well, remember, early days, Skylar was convinced that diving was the one thing yeah. that she woke up in the morning for, so I had the option to redshirt, so I wouldn't have been able to dive, and so yeah. for me, I mean, it, that was, I was not trying to have a year of school where I couldn't dive as well, and so I wanted to be able to throw myself into something else, and so work was uh, that focus, and it worked out well, because I found, uh, certainly found my passion out of that year. Is that, is that where the call to service originated from? 100%. That year of both meeting people across State Department and DOD and then that final experience in Afghanistan shaped what was previously a general interest in foreign policy into a very specific passion that I decided this is the mission that I want to support. This is the most meaningful thing that I could contribute to in my life. Uh, again, foreign policy generally was interesting to me. Women's education was important to me. It was why I went and taught at a school in Afghanistan. But when I was there, I discovered that half the time the girls couldn't walk to school safely. Half the time mm. they couldn't even go to school at all because their families were under threat from the Taliban. And so to me, it, I, it something clicked where I was able to realize in order to accomplish any of these other goals that I have, whether it's social, economic reform, whatever it might be, national security was at the core. So if I was going to be able to do anything else, national security needed to be the focus first and foremost. So what year was that you were in Afghanistan? 2013. And then I went back in 2014 for research. Okay. And then you graduated from Harvard and then you went into... You went to Capitol Hill or you went into industry? I went into industry first. So I was at a defense and aerospace consulting firm. Mm -hmm. And there we were working with a mixture of defense primes and defense startups that were starting to realize the opportunity space that existed with technology. And so in many cases, we were helping them stand up their autonomous branches for the first time or stand up their quantum computing and biotechnology branches for the first time. Um, that, that was really where the first time that I dipped my toe into the technology space of this. Um, but the other piece of it that really helped me crystallize why data was so important was that I was also a defense uh, budget modeling analyst for years and years where we had to build out five and 10 year forecast models so that companies could sort of orient their, their own investments around it. And by spending ungodly numbers of hours of my own time being an Excel monkey, uh, it definitely gave me an appreciation for the importance of data, of getting it right at the beginning, of the risks of the way that it can be uh, misleading, garbage in, garbage out. All of that became very clear. It's interesting how through these experiences, you've weaved in that defense calling, you know, whether it was your time in industry, was it with your time in Afghanistan. Now understand a little bit more where, where the call to service starts to, to shape for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the way I usually describe my career path is I've been circling the problem of technology and national security just from different perspectives. So at the beginning, the reason that I went into industry first was because I wanted to get more of a quantitative background to approach it. I was realizing that the, the policy side and the more social science side was very important, but it would give me a particular um, advantage to be able to view these problems through a quantitative lens. And so that was really what going into consulting and having that sort of business analytics aspect uh, gave to me. And then from there, I moved into OSD. And that was much more the broader policy. What does this mean for big, big Department of Defense? Um, and looking at the technology issues from the Defense Innovation Board's perspective, the legislative branch then by going to Congress and working with the House Armed Services Committee, writing legislation for tech and national security. Uh, and then most recently, when I was out with the Task Force 5-9 out at NAVCENT, getting more of that operational flavor of, okay, we've been making all these recommendations about technology investment and how they should be used and who they should go to. But gosh, shouldn't I understand better? Better who the user is and what their actual environment is in order to make those recommendations at all. So gap filling my perspectives has been a critical piece yeah, of this. Awesome. 
Before you came in Test Force 59, I think we missed a step there, is that at a certain point you joined the Navy. Yes. So how did you, what was your source to get into the Navy? How did that, how did that happen? Yeah, I commissioned in 2021, so it, it's somewhat recent, but again, it's, it was about gap-filling the perspective, so I was making all these recommendations about tech investments mm -hmm. and how people should be using them and realized I am at risk of making a mistake that has mm -hmm. been made before in the department of assuming what the requirements are of someone in theater, of assuming what their environment is like, uh, and losing precious time and resources on technology that might not actually fit their needs. And so, as a result of that revelation, you did what? How did you How did you come into the Navy? I think is yeah. So I I looked at all of the, at the different services and and thought about which uh, processes and which branches and which cultures best fit me. I felt that Navy intelligence was probably the best fit. Uh, and then I uh, applied and went through a recruiter and uh, joined the Navy Intelligence Reserve in in 2021. And again, I'm it's very clear to me that the reserve is not the same thing as active duty. The intention was not never to um, claim or feel that I, I had that, but it gave me got me closer access to the folks that really own that problem and exist closest to the problem. And that was critical to me. Not just Navy divers. Yeah, right. That's, right. that's where that's where my mind went when you were saying Navy and diver. Not where I was going. Aquatic, just aquatic yeah. spirit across across the board. So. But you must have been activated to come into Task Force 59. I was. I okay. went on active duty orders. Okay. Task Force 59, it predates the current commander, who is General Crowley, and the culture of innovation we have established, and you are establishing here, we are all establishing here. So perhaps you could just explain it, its origin, what it does for those uninformed on that matter. Absolutely, so Task Force 5.9 is the unmanned and AI task force out at NAVSENT. Their intention is to integrate unmanned and AI capabilities into fleet operations. They were stood up in September of 2021. I got connected with the commander of that task force, Michael Brasser, in the early months of 2022. And at that moment, I think the direction the task force had gone was they had an inkling mm -hmm. that unmanned surface vessels could really change the game. Mm -hmm. And that it really could add a layer of situational awareness that was increasingly difficult to have in the vast waters that surrounded the Arabian Peninsula. And so they had just gotten a handful of out into the water. They were doing some initial testing um, and they were looking for ways to really ramp up what, what, what they were doing. The initial conversation was that I was going to be in my reserve capacity supporting mm -hmm. them on the weekends. But when I spoke to them, it became really clear to me that this was a a phenomenal way to gap fill my own perspective of get into theater, help understand what their requirements were, um, but B, that I had a skill set that I, I thought really could help the task force because I had experience with what uh, communicating over to OSD would look like, about what communicating to the Hill looked like, about um, framing this in a broader perspective of how do you set up not just um, one technology that helps one user, but a mechanism that helps the department. And maybe just to clarify one component here, NavSent is our Maritime Force or Maritime Headquarters, which is positioned in Bahrain, which is where you were adjudicating your duties there for Task Force 59. Correct. So you go from there to here, to Tampa, to the Chief Technology Officer role. So how did you go, how did you do that transition? So in the early months of General Carrillo's time, he was making his rounds through the theater, and we had a couple of opportunities to brief him on what we were doing, both with unmanned systems and with AI capabilities. Um, and given his interests, he, of course, immediately uh, sort of understood the mechanisms that we were pushing forward and the value of the technologies. Um, and so we had broader conversations about what his vision was for the command. And then I was uh, fortunate enough for both this position to open up and then to be uh, selected for an interview and then finally to be selected. Then you came on, I believe, in October of last year. Uh, November was my official start date. Okay. So 
what's your role here? Chief Technology Officer, how do you define it? How do you do it? What do you do? Um, I, th I think of my, at a very high level, my, my role is very much to both find the right technologies and push them to the people that need it in a timely way. But then also second is to encourage and uh, spur innovation across the command. And so I think maybe before going into that, it's useful to talk about what exactly we mean when we talk about innovation, because it feels like a very fluffy concept. I think that sometimes it's difficult to wrap your hands around. To me, innovation is very simple. It's having a mindset of asking the question, there's got to be a way to do this better. How would I do this better? And then executing on that and then doing it over and over again, where every situation you walk into, you ask the question, is there a better way of doing that? And especially the Department of Defense, I think that there's just such, there's such a long history that you're walking into at any given point of this is the way that we have done it for decades and decades. And so to have that mindset requires a cultural shift in whatever organization you're in. And I think that we're really making a lot of progress as CENTCOM being able to sh manage that shift. Right. When, when I think innovation, my mind always goes to tech, but there's multiple ways to innovate. It could be 100%. technology, it could be processes, policies. Would you agree? And, and is that sort of where your, your strategies are, are headed to? That's exactly right. So I think that technology really is actually a very small piece of it because sometimes technology is the answer, um, but sometimes it's not. So very frequently, it's a people issue, it's a process issue. Um, and so, so many of the conversations I hear have here at the command is reviewing processes that have been in place since the 40s and 50s and saying, is this the only way to do this? Is there a better way of doing it where we can meet the needs of our people better, where we can make folks' lifestyle better, where we can improve our processes and in, in terms of the precision and the speed that we're running them? Um, all of that that falls under the umbrella of innovation. It does not have to be technology focused. You know, you were also in a, a very public uh, Washington Post article just recently. So, you know, I'm, I'm just curious what, what that part was like. When you were hired, it was a, a bit of news. You know, you were the first chief technology officer assigned to a combatant command with this interesting background. Tampa headquarters here in, Sen in CENCOM made a big public push of it. So I'm just wondering what that part has been like. You, you certainly clearly are adjudicating it well. You don't seem to be in any way intimidated by it. I'm just wondering what you think about that. Um, I mean, I, I just think of it as a necessary part of it because communication about a new way of doing things is is how you get it embedded into the larger organization and allow it to sustain over time. I think that it's really easy to spin up a shiny new thing that then dies as soon yeah. as the individual or the community who let it very briefly goes and that communicating up and aggressively out both inside of the department and outside of the department um, is really the primary way that we're actually going to benefit DOD writ large. Um, and so I, I think that translation, I, I think of it less so as sort of strategic messaging up and out. I think of it more as falling under the bucket of translating services that I hope to provide to the command. I think that we have an interesting combination of uh, operational experience that spans decades, and so you have operators who just, they're, they're, they will forget more about their field than I will ever know. And at the same time, we have these technologies coming in and technologists coming in that have these exquisite capabilities that, that um, folks in the department haven't experienced before. And so technologists are coming in with that depth, but they have no idea what the operational space is like. And so having to navigate those conversations sometimes feels like sitting in a room where one person speaks Chinese and the other speaks French, and I'm trying to get them both to speak Spanish. Um, but that translation is so critical because that's how you get the resources, the leadership support, and everything else you need to sustain any changes that you make with those conversations in those rooms. Maybe just on that theme, in terms of in terms of your role here, you came in, you're 30 years old, you, which is 
20 years younger than most of the people you work with here. And, you know, you came in from, you know, this kind of corporate academic background and you're working alongside some of these, you know, war fighters, generals, admirals, and you seem to be, you certainly don't seem in any way intimidated by that. You seem to have all the access and, and capability that, that you'd need. What, what's that been like for you? Um, I mean, I just, I, I view it as part of my, I, I, I guess I'm not intimidated by it because it's not about me. Mm -hmm. It's not about whether or not I succeed at this. It's about problem solving for the larger organization, which sort of elevates any risk to my own personal ego or to, to myself out of it. Mm -hmm. And so as long as you focus on that, of who who is the community that we care about and what is the problem that we're solving for them, um, that makes it a little bit easier to strip away any emotions or fear that might be associated with the role because um, the, the thing I'm good at is focusing on a problem and, and running problem solving. That's what makes me happy. That's what that I like waking up and doing in the morning. I like breaking apart a problem and understanding the different pieces and identifying the solutions to them. And there are an abundance of them here. And so it keeps me really busy. And so I think that that uh, helps me not think about the other parts of this experience that might be a little strange. In terms of the experience, you seem to spend a lot of time you're maybe split your time, and I may be wrong about this, but I, don't, I, don't, I think I'm at least partly right. You split your time here between here, Tampa, you're in D.C., and you're in the region. Yeah. And all those things are, are important. You're in Tampa. You're always, anytime, I've, I've seen you in Tampa, you're always communicating what you're doing. You're sort of directing, leading. In the region, I'm not sure what you're doing in the region. I imagine interacting with our units, and then in D.C., kind of more of the up and out, discussing things with DOD. But wh what, are you, what are you doing in those three roles? Yeah, so I think when I'm in theater, I'm listening. That is the primary. It's it's about making sure that I understand the context and I'm asking the right questions so that I can start connecting the dots to, okay, what resources do we have available? What teams or individuals or talent that you, I could connect to the problem that could help them solve it? So when, when I'm out in theater, it is, it is mostly just listening. I, I try to collect the right people into the room so that I can then barrage them with questions. When I come back to headquarters, that's when the coordination kicks in of, okay, I've collected the problem set. I need to now circle to the teams that might be able to help them identify the resources that we need to pull both in CENTCOM and outside in order to manage that particular problem, whether it's technology, whether it's process whether it's people. Um, and then when I go up to DC, that's about the messaging up because in many cases, that's where you go for the resourcing, whether it's money, whether it's talent, whether it's just pure leadership support, all of those are so, so important. And so when I can shape the narrative of I've listened and I understand the problem, I've gone to headquarters and understood where the resources that we have and don't have, and then I can message the value of what we're doing and the gaps that we need to fill up in DC, that combination um, is the trio I'm trying to hit. You're here at a time where there's three or four things that are coming together simultaneously. One is we have a dynamic set of leaders who are focused on innovation and in some cases have made a career of driving military organizations to innovate, to think different, to break through bureaucracy. So that's happening. And then we have all these complicated problem sets with regard to drones coming in and you know, raising up our partners and training with partners, building partner capability, focusing on ISIS. So you've got that. And then you've got this reduction in resources commensurate with the Pentagon's focus elsewhere and, and coming out of these, these very long wars. So you're coming in really while, while it's almost like a critical point of these three streams. So how, how do you see that? What do you think of that? hundred percent. I think exactly the way you described it, there's both a push and a pull of, of shift in resources and leaders in the right time, in the right place, that makes this the perfect place. I don't mean this as lip service. There, there is nowhere else that I would work in the department right now to work mm -hmm. on this problem set, full stop. 
But what is the biggest of all? Uh, was it resources? Is it leadership philosophy? Is it authorities, policy? What has been the biggest challenge as the innovation flag bearer for the command that you've, you've seen since, since November? Um, in the command, I mean, I'll be frank, I am really happy with the progress that we, we've made. And the biggest challenge that I see going forward is just maintaining that momentum and maintaining that drive. And our ability to do that is, uh, is significantly aided, if, if not solely driven, by General Carrilla's vision and willingness to push and say, this is the priority and we are going to continue to move at speed. Uh, I think that sometimes it's easy to get to, to rest on your laurels and feel that you've surged and then fall away from that surge. Um, and that is not the case here, uh, or certainly not in the time that I've been here have I felt that suddenly the foot has been taken off the gas. I think it's very clear that it is going to be foot all the way down on the gas for the entirety of the time that we're here and that, that in the meantime, and that we'll be able to build mechanisms where that momentum will be able to sustain past myself, past General Corolla, past anybody else, so that anybody who exists at CENTCOM five years, 10 years from now can hopefully feel the good effects of what we've done. Is there one specific challenge that you have in mind, like, I'm going to solve this one specific deal? And, and, and what would that be? I mean, at a very high level, I know that we, the department pays a lot of lip service to the concept of JADC2, of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. Um, but I believe that here at the command, we are actually executing that and building it into reality. And it started, and I think it's because we've been able to break it into manageable problem sets uh, that each of our teams have, have held. And the beauty of it is that this is not something that I own or that the CTO office owns. It's something that is embedded across all of the JADERS. We are, I think, just today alone, I've had conversations with the J2, the J3, 4, and 5, and 6 about all of the efforts that they're going to do to create a more digital way of going about warfighting that reduces the time spent on uh, tasks that are not worth our brain power of that, put something on PowerPoint, make sure that it matches the PDF, call another person to make sure that your PDF matches their PDF. All of that time is being reduced in addition to increased accuracy and precision that we're able to get by leveraging some of the algorithms and models that we've been integrating into the command's work. And so that to me is some of the most meaningful work um, that I'm able to participate on a day-to-day -day basis. And it is, it's exciting even more so because of the broad participation across the entire combatant command. It is not just one team, it is everybody and we're seeing where everyone has to talk to one another and bring everyone into the same room. Um, watching that make progress is really exciting to me. So what's the next step in, in what we're doing with JADC2? I mean, the next step is to continue the drumbeat of exercises and sprints that we have happening. I think one of the phenomenal benefits that we have as a command is that we have the ability to conduct exercises and we have access to a real world environment and we have access to people who are functioning in that real world environment. And so we have our monthly exercises going on right now, Digital Falcon. We roll those up into larger quarterly exercises called Digital Falcon Oasis that also are done in conjunction with OSD and the joint staff. Um, and those anchoring events create a forcing function to drag capability forward. I think that sometimes it's easy to talk about capability notionally and forget to set a deadline. And without a deadline, especially for an organization of our size, um, it's really hard to make everybody coordinate and get to an end state. And so for us, having that constant drumbeat of hitting exercises um, has created a pace and speed that I've never seen before in the department. It's important to keep things measurable and time bound. Exactly. In order for them to progress.
Task Force 59 was kind of the, almost like the flagship, the headquarters here spends a lot of time marketing this. Sail drones and, and everything that Admiral Cooper and his team have done, your team prior to you coming here have done. So that was kind of the, the spearhead. And then now there's two other task forces. Maybe you can describe those and what they're doing. Absolutely. So there's Task Force 39 for 3rd Army or Arsent, and there's also Task Force 99 for 9th Air Force or AFSENT. So Task Force 39 is focused on a number of different issues related to autonomous ground vehicles. Uh, they're also looking at counter UAS, border security, and increasingly the potential um, from a logistical standpoint of new technologies and approaches like additive manufacturing. Um, they, they really have an interesting grab bag of, of issues that they're pushing forward, and we're really excited to see those coming to fruition over the next couple of months. Task Force 99 is focused on a couple of uh, different issues, as you would imagine, more in the air domain. So air domain awareness is a big one. And really, one of the primary issues that they're getting at is how do I manage the gap? between these exquisite air platforms that carry exquisite sensors and, and give you kinetic or ISR effect and anything that exists in between that and like a group one quadcopter. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is that we really invested, it's, it's in many ways a similar problem set to what Task Force 59 had, where you have these large exquisite vessels, but short of that, you don't have a lot of flexibility and options um, in terms of other assets that you can get out there. And so uh, Task Force 99 is really looking at the long endurance alternative ISR um, options that exist out there. And then also the different ways that you could use those assets. If you find something that can fly for a long time, what are the different payloads that you can put on to create more flexibility for the commander to respond short of I have an MQ-9 up or, or something to that effect. And these are independent to each of the service components, but they somehow integrate in communication with your team, correct? You're constantly talking to them about, about their efforts? Yeah, so so initially they were all working independently, but we quickly realized that so many of their requirements and so many of the, um, again, the mechanisms that they used overlapped. And so we now have weekly syncs with all of them on the same call where everybody is uh, talking about what different projects they're working on, sharing ideas about how to go about uh, different efforts. They're for, they're increasingly scheduling their own joint exercises, Task Force 5, 9, and 9-9. Uh, Jason came off of a joint evaluation of long endurance platforms out at the International Marriage time exercise in February, uh, and they're really learning from one another because, again, some of this is unique to their service. They're certainly a flavor of maritime versus air versus ground, but so many of their problems are service and domain agnostic. They're working on issues related to contracting. They're working on issues related to talent recruitment. These are issues that all of us face, and also they're, they're learning lessons that are shareable to the rest of the department. Those issues that I just described are not CENTCOM specific. Those are things that anybody in the department could benefit from. Across all warfighting functions, too. Across so warfighting functions, and, and a lot of it, what this seems to be speaking to, tell me if I'm wrong, is collecting information, intelligence, collecting data, bringing data into an operation center and informing our manned system. So, you know, collecting data and then allowing us to use our traditional systems more strategically, more efficiently, and then just giving us what we consider to be, you know, decision dominance, decision advantage. Absolutely. So, okay, maybe if we just tie in one more initiative here, and that is uh, Red Sands. This experimentation center, this agreement developed between um, Saudi Chad, the chief of defense for Saudi Arabia, and the commander of Central Command. This is an agreement that was worked over months. The first exercise took place last month. What can you tell us about Red Sands? Red Sands is phenomenal. It really, I think it encapsulates all of 
what we were talking about earlier about the importance of getting these technologies out into the theater, into the hands of the people who are going to use them so that they can work through friction points earlier rather than later. There are just basic, you know, the, the, the friction points I think we always think are going to be these super shiny advanced tech issues. And inevitably, it is just basic operational functions of can it work in an area that is extremely sandy and hot and windy and salty? Uh, is it going to function on how long does someone need to be trained on a system to really be able to use it and be comfortable with it? How can you change that training to make sure that someone can learn on it a little bit faster than they might otherwise? All of those issues, you can't identify those friction points until you've actually pushed technology into the right environment, into the hands of the person who's going to use it. And so we at CENTCOM are uniquely able to do that because we have an abundance of uh, of live real world environments that, that have some really challenging one-way UAS challenges that we can that we can test them against. And we have all of our operators out there who are ready and willing to try out this kit. And staying unafraid to fail fast and move forward and capitalize on the lessons. I think that's very important. And it got a lot of positive feedback when the commander was testifying um, the last couple of weeks in March about the innovation. Absolutely. Many congressmen, many senators were congratulating U.S. CENCOM on pushing the envelope on innovation and cooperation. Well, and as a reminder, I mean, the Red Sands and the counter UAS mission is a perfect example of how CENTCOM's mission doesn't exist in a vacuum. The problems that we face are not CENTCOM-specific. Counter UAS is something that is shared across all regions. I mean, the most obvious one is in Europe right now, where we are watching Iranian drones being sent over from Russia into Ukraine. Um, but that, that problem exists elsewhere in Korea and our forces in the Pacific. That is, that is increasingly going to be a problem. And so if we can get in front of it and if we can share those lessons learned, uh, everyone in the department benefits. And we're hearing about a mobile app that was tested at Red Sands that's in development. I'm not sure where, how far along with uh, Task Force 39, Task Force 99. Can you describe that for us? Absolutely. We're really excited about that one. So the app is called Carpe Dronum, which is a fantastic name, but it is uh, inspired by an app that exists actually in Ukraine, where the civilian population has the ability to take pictures of UAS if you see them going across and then uh, send it so that the right folks can, can see it and respond. And so the the idea is that in the same way, the civilian population uh in our region should be able to be mobilized to that effect so that if you see something threatening coming overhead, uh, you can report it and have better odds of responding to it. Because half the battle is seeing the threats and identifying as they're coming across. The more sensors that we can get out there, the better. And if the population as a whole essentially becomes a self-defending sensor, um, that's a really good that's a really good way of getting at that problem. So just to drill down, so you identify or have a concern that a drone is coming at you, or you observe something that might be a drone. You open the app, you point it at the drone, and then the interface there identifies the type of drone and passes it to everyone on the app. Is that how it works? Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, you can, you can imagine I'm I am uh, I'm outside at a picnic with my family. I see something in the air that's starting to come toward us and go overhead. I pull out my phone. I snap a picture of it. Computer vision on that app identifies that it is X type of drone. It identifies my current location, the direction and angle at which I took a picture. Identifies the direct if if somebody else is in the region and in, in within the space that I'm in and also takes a picture, can triangulate exactly the location and uh, direction or heading of that UAS. All of that is possible through that the, this app. And again, you, you just you can imagine the potential for this if rather than having to figure out the limited sensors you have and whether or not they happen to catch a UAS coming across, all you need is for someone to be in eyesight. And it seems success is reliant then on getting that to our partners and partners getting it to their civilian population, particularly Syria, Saudi Arabia, spreading that out to our partner militaries from there and then into the, into the local population. 
populations? Absolutely. I mean, and I think it's a it's a great example of how, you know, our, our people, partners and innovation threads that we pull on are all interwoven. This is something where this is an innovation effort, but it cannot be executed without close partnership. And in so many cases, that that is consistently what we see. We don't fight alone. We never have, never will. And so, so many of these technologies need to be developed, fielded and used by a combination of U.S. and foreign populations, not even military forces, just general populations. You tell me, it seems like most people in CENTCOM understand it. You know, I, I don't really, I only talk to the people here in Tampa for the most part. When you're going into the region, when you're talking to troops, when you're talking to leaders, I imagine, my, certainly my experience from Fort Bragg, is that the junior level gets it, right? They were almost in some ways, they're raised on technology in ways that people Crespo's age were not, you know, gamers and like- Again, I'm only 42. And then you've got, um, you know, the, the top tier, I think, in an intellectual level, understands the need to compete, to maintain an advantage over adversaries who are innovating. What about in between there? I mean, is your message resonating with those groups? Do people understand it? Do they appreciate it? Do they embrace it? I think that it's all dependent on how you frame it, mm. of what does innovation do for you? The point is not innovation for innovation's sake. The point is innovation to solve a particular problem. And if you can connect the dots between the individual, the hardest problem in their day, and how what you're doing is going to solve it, suddenly folks are much more interested. And so I think that we're getting to a space where we're able to do that more effectively because uh, we're, the, we're, we're talking about solutions that are, you know, sometimes very specific to in-theater problems, but often we're talking about processes that are burning hours and hours of your day, whether here at headquarters or elsewhere. And we're saying, think about all of that brain space that you're using on a task that is taking four hours and could actually take 10 minutes. What if we gave you a tool that allowed you to save that for, you know, three hours and 50 minutes? This is something substantive that you, to give back to someone. Innovation is not something that should be forced on, of, not even forced, but innovation isn't something that you task someone with and that you just hand to them as a, as a weight that they then have to carry. Innovation should actually take weight off of someone's shoulders if done effectively. Yeah, I think a good example is, I, I told you this story, I think a couple of weeks, I think I told you this story, was the current commander of U.S. Central Command was command, commanded the 82nd Airborne Division years ago, several years ago. And there's a traditional way of conducting airborne operations. And when you go out to do airborne operations, you have to do sustained airborne training. There's a number of steps you got to do before you actually get on the airplane and jump, which is like the big bonanza, right? Getting on the airplane, then you jump. That's like the fun part. There's like <laughs> hours of stuff you have to do prior to that. And so, you know, I think the commander went there and identified, you, okay, you're doing it this way. Everybody gathers in one place. You don the parachute, you do this, you get in the mock door, and people were getting hurt. There's a lot of back injuries. You know, you're in the harness. Sorry. Lower lower limb injuries and then back injuries. And so the commander said, okay, well, why don't you just take these parts and pieces and just break them up? Every soldier in the organization does physical training every day in this field. You know where they are. And once they're done, there's a mock door right there. Why don't you do that after, within 96 hours of the airborne operation, just do that part of it. Okay, so you get that part out of the way. The next part, you do it the next day. So you you iterate these things, and then you don't have soldiers congregated for hours, and you don't have soldiers in the harness for hours, and you less stress on the back, less injuries, back, lower, lower limb injuries, and more importantly, you know, there's a fight. Once you insert, there's a fight. That's the whole point of the airborne operation. Get to the fight and then fight. So our soldiers need to be fresh for the fight. So the initial reaction to that was, well, look, we've been doing it this way since 1972. This is the 82nd Airborne Division. And so the view was, okay, you've been doing it wrong since 1972. This is a new way of doing it. This is how we're doing it. Bottom line, injuries dropped down. Lower limb injuries, back injuries dropped down. The troops were more appreciative of it. They made better use of their time. Morale went up. 
and when they did the airborne insertion, they were able to get to the fight faster. These were all measured effects. So when you talk about innovation, that's a, that's a story. It's not, there's no new technology developed. We just thought about taking this system and looking at it differently. It wasn't, even, it wasn't even a new way of thinking. It was just breaking it up or looking at it differently or coming at it from a different angle. That is, a, that is a perfect example of what we mean when we say innovation, because the point is to look at the way that something has been done and say, is this, have we arrived at the conclusion that we do it this way because this is the best option available? Or have we arrived at this because we have failed to tend, spend the time and think of how it might be done better? If it is a lack of creativity that has made you arrive at the way that you do it, you are fundamentally missing the mark and you need to be rethinking it. That, that is a perfect example of it. That's so interesting because a lot of creative thinking and imagination, those are not necessarily necessarily skills that every military officer develops. They're important, certainly, but you maybe bring that in given this unique set of life experiences that you've described here. You bring that in, you feed the organization with that, and I think it perhaps in, in the long run will benefit not only CENTCOM, not only our troops, but also the region and all the things we're trying to do on behalf of the region. Certainly trying to. I mean, what, what I love about this job is the is having those that communication and that access to the people who are closest to the problem and often have the most creative, brilliant solutions. I really think that there is just there are, there are pockets of the military where there is this chaotic creativity that you just need to be able to harness and then give them a mechanism to drive it and make it actually happen. There are certain folks across multiple organizations at Task Force Five Nine. There was Commander Ray Miller from 18th Airborne Corps. Colonel Joe Callahan comes to mind. But folks, where I believe that if I gave them two rolls of duct tape and a hand grenade they would figure out pretty much any scenario that I dropped them into. It is that kind of just, I am going to come hell or high water, solve this problem mindset that you need to identify and then empower and give them the mechanism and others to ride that mechanism as well and say, oh, there is you can think differently about this. You can offer up different solutions. And I think a really great way that we're starting to go about that here at the command is through our Innovation Oasis series, where we had our first one in uh, in the fall of last year. I think that was in October. Um, and our next one is coming up in May. And the intention is to show, you know, half of this is about highlighting, the, is about finding those good ideas that may be buried, uh, you know, in a, in a tent somewhere, in the, in the bowels of a ship somewhere, and elevating to the commander. But the other half is messaging to the command your ideas are not only valued, but welcome. You should you should be thinking about different ways of going about this. We want to hear from you. Setting that environment where people feel like they can share those good ideas improves everybody's operations. And to that point, you know, troops have ideas. They have new ways of doing things. They identified deficiencies or inefficient methods within their daily life, and they solve for them. I think sometimes between you or between the CENTCOM commander and that troop, there's multiple layers of bureaucracy that get in the way. And I think if you can strip through that bureaucracy and bring that idea up to the top, unlock that idea, there's a great benefit for the organization. That seems to be the message behind this CENTCOM innovation oasis, or at least one of the messages. Absolutely. No, there's no question. And what, what I find funny, actually, is that my previous experiences engaging with tech often remind me of my experiences going into theater, because when I walk into, say, a garage where some tech starts startup is just getting going and you've got these kids who are just making it work with whatever they've got, but they've got a really good idea and they are going to make it work. I, I, I frequently get the same energy when I walk into uh, a, a base overseas and they're, they've found some, they have a problem and they are pulling together whatever they've got within hand's reach and they're going to figure out a way to get to point from point A to point B. The way that the that tech sector, especially early stage tech sector, thinks about problem solving, I think is probably closest in culture to what you see when you get out um, to folks in theater. Earlier I had mentioned that my mind 
mind goes straight to the tech when he talks about innovation. And clearly over the last few minutes, we've talked about it's the ideas, it's the, it's the new methods of doing things that also categorizes innovation. But going back to the technology and the, the tools, right, the hardware, with the tech ever changing and evolving constantly, it's hard to keep up, right? Personally, I, I struggle to keep up with the latest phone, let alone, you know, we're talking about um, combatant command. What's the future there? How do we overcome perhaps some of that, that lagging in, in the tech that we hold? in the future? Is it, is it through maintenance? Is it through training? Is it commercial off the shelves? What, what do you think? I think that it, it's more about setting the mechanisms and or organizing yourselves to take advantage of whatever the next tech might be. Because I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking of technology as the end state rather than the enabler to your problem of I have a problem and I'm solving for it. It's not that I specifically need an autonomous system or I specifically need AI to solve it, that I have a problem and whatever gets me there fastest and best, that is the answer. And so we can organize for that. And the way that we've done that here is we have organizations that are focused on creative problem solving. That, I mean, that's really how I would define the work of Task Force 3-9, of Task Force 5-9, and of Task Force 9-9 um, of my office, of bringing me in so that my primary focus is to think about the mechanisms we can offer to the command to say, whatever the problem is, we're going to think about different ways of going about this, and we will help you get there using these new mechanisms. Everyone's busy. Everybody here has full-time jobs where they've got a lot to do. What I can do is look from the outside and say, I think I know of a couple of folks who might be able to help you do that a little bit easier, and I will help facilitate it because I know you're busy, and we will see if we can find a better way of going about this. Maybe just to tie a bow around all this, this entire discussion, is that, you know, thinking about you as a proxy for innovation in terms of, you know, the, the three things we talk about, we just talked about it, people, partners, innovation, you know, thinking about you as almost like a prism through which to, to evaluate this or, or to think about it. We're all in these jobs temporarily. You know, we find, we all find great meaning in them, not just for the organization, but in our, in our personal lives. But we're at some point moving on to another thing, another job, or in the in the military, but another job somewhere else, or some other thing where, that you're going to find meaning in your life. When that happens, whether it's in 2024 or 20 years from now, what do you hope your legacy will have been here in CENTCOM? I, I hope that I will have put in place mechanisms for innovation of all types, technology, people, processes, that will allow momentum to sustain and build after I leave. That will be the metric of success. I think that sometimes innovation efforts or communities may have to make a choice between delivering fish or delivering the teaching of how to fish. And sometimes you deliver, this is the product that is going to fix your problem. And that's good for now. But to the everything we've talked about before this, sometimes frequently times evolve and whatever you handed gets out of date or the community that comes afterwards doesn't quite understand what the initial intent was. Something is lost in translation and that effort slowly dies. However, if you can teach an organization to fish, if you can teach them to consistently reevaluate the way that they do things, identify the resources that might allow them to go about a different way of doing things, of continuing to have events, whether it's exercises, whether it's innovation oases of whatever else that allow them to, to continue to solicit good ideas, that is actually what's going to allow a lot of these efforts to sustain in the long term. Uh, I may be able to come up with a particular technology or solution that is appropriate for the command today, but innovation oases are the filter that's going to create a pipeline of good ideas that are agnostic of me. Innovation oases do not depend on my existence here at CENTCOM, and that's the beauty of them. So to me, success is in an odd way uh, making myself almost irrelevant to innovation at the command. If I do a really good job of being the chief technology officer, in my view, when I leave, you almost not be able to feel the effect because we will have embedded the effort so deeply in the traditional structure across the joint directorates of this command that all of those efforts will continue to move and continue to maintain speed uh, with or without me there. 
yeah. like weaving it into the culture itself. Exactly. Well, you're very relevant to us and to the organization and to us here today, particularly relevant because you finally came on the Scentcast podcast. So you finally we... deigned it worth your while to invite me. <laughs> you, you blew Thank us up, you, I think, Joe. seven times. So no. Okay. <laughs> all right. All good. Thank you so much for coming, Skylar. Thank you guys for having me. Well, that was fantastic. So are you smarter now than you were before? I feel like I understand what Syncom is doing with innovation now. It is. Prior a, to talking. Correct. To talking. It's easier to me now to, to understand a bit more what the concept of innovation when she puts it so well measurable effects, measurable, tangible things and efforts that we're doing in the command. People, partners, innovation. Let's start with people. Boy, do we have some impressive people, people here in sure. Syncom, and that's one of them. Partners. Partners. Well, you know, this... Uh, she talked about that. She talked about all the partnerships we're doing with other countries and other efforts to, to, to integrate them. And innovation expands the legs of those partnerships it is really does. one way of thinking about it. And then, of course, innovation, innovation of thought, concept, process, and technology. And ideas, too. Okay, Crespo, thanks so much. Another great episode. Thanks. Another so great episode. Can't wait for the next one. Can't wait for the next one.